0: This is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith.
1: Temperatures are soaring this summer in the Southern Hemisphere. South America is cooking, setting hundreds of new records. Recently in Australia, Sydney Airport set a new December heat record of 43.5 degrees C, 110 Fahrenheit, the hottest early day in 44 years, and 18 degrees C above average. Australia dreads a horror summer of heat and fire. It is no surprise that Australia leads research into heat and the limits of human health. Lessons there will come due for northern listeners in the coming El Nino year. We hear from Dr. Ollie J, director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator. He's at the University of Sydney. He's just published on the limits of human survivability during extreme heat. Doctor and University of Sydney professor Adrian Gordon joins us to explain her specialty in the care of mothers and the unborn during heat waves. Then filmmaker Nick Breeze wraps it up with Dr. Jack O'Connor, tipping points and interconnected disaster risks. Welcome to Radio with Heat. I'm Alex Smith. Experts may underestimate human risk during extreme heat, especially as Earth reaches the hottest temperatures in more than a million years. And beyond bear survival, what do we need to really live for basic household tasks or even physical work? A new study warns we are not protecting the most vulnerable. This includes babies, seniors, the unhoused, and other risks you may not know about. We have the ideal guest to explain. Professor Ollie J is director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator. That's at the University of Sydney. He is a co-author of the paper published November 29, 2023 in Nature Communications. It's titled, A Physiological Approach for Assessing Human Survivability and Livability to Heat in a Changing Climate. From Sydney, Australia, Ollie J, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
2: Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on.
1: You just had your first early season heat wave in Australia. Absolute temperature records were set last week in China and Korea in what should be the start of their winter. People all around the world experienced extreme heat this year. How would you introduce the purpose of your new heat study?
2: Well, I think it's important for people to first not just focus on temperatures. So obviously the ambient temperature, which is measured in the shade, is an important consideration. But if we think about the way in which the human body interacts with the environment in order to try to keep cool, one of the other key aspects is the humidity of the air and the ability to sweat. And it's the evaporation of that sweat into the surrounding environment that is the most potent way in which humans keep cool. So when we're thinking about the threat to human health now and the the threat to human survival in the future, we need to think not only about temperature, but we need to think about humidity.
1: For over a decade, experts warned the limit for human survival was around 35 degrees C, measured by something called the wet bulb temperature. What is that, and how was that limit established?
2: Okay, so um, it's a 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature threshold. So the best way to think about it is if you have a thermometer and you wrap that thermometer in a wet cloth, and then if water from that wet cloth evaporates, it will reduce the temperature of that, of that thermometer. Now, at 35 degrees Celsius, wet bulb temperature it's basically equivalent to 35 degrees Celsius with 100% relative humidity. And at that particular point, there is no heat transfer between the body and the surrounding environment. So we transfer heat between the body and the environment through two predominant pathways. One is called sensible heat transfer via radiation and convection which is dependent on a temperature difference between the outside of the body, so the surface of the body, and the air. And so when we're fully vasodilic, so we're fully responding to a heat stress, that skin temperature reaches a maximum of around about 35 degrees Celsius. So when air temperature which is 35 degrees Celsius, there's no temperature difference, so there's no sensible heat loss. But we still have the evaporation of sweat, provided that sweat can evaporate. But if our skin is 35 degrees Celsius, and we're fully saturating the skin with sweat, and the air is fully saturated with water at 35 degrees Celsius, there is now no humidity difference between the skin and the air, and therefore none of the sweat can evaporate. So basically, all is to say that when we reach a 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature condition, we no longer lose any heat from the body to the environment, and we're constantly generating heat inside the body through cellular processes, which is a part of metabolism, If we can't get rid of any of that heat, we just basically accumulate that heat inside the body to the point where we cook to death. Um, An important thing to keep in mind is that 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature can be achieved through a variety of different combinations of temperature and humidity. So while you get a 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature, 35 degrees Celsius and 100% humidity, you also get it at, let's say, 43 degrees Celsius and 60 plus relative humidity.
1: As your paper explains, there are two approaches to estimating heat risk. One is to measure actual excess deaths within a few days of the heat wave, basically epidemiology. But that assumes a developed health system that recognizes heat-induced mortality and keeps records, and that's not the case in many hot, humid parts of the world. How does your physiological method work?
2: Well, the the physiological method is not necessarily keeping count of heat deaths. It's basically... Placing the human body at the center of this model for assessing what the risks are going into the future. So this is really important because the problem from a health perspective is the hot person in the hot environment, not necessarily just the hot environment per se. And so we can find different ways in which we cool people in a warm environment through different processes. But in this particular case, what we're doing, we're saying, okay, well, if we do reach a 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature condition, how does that affect the human body? And are we actually overestimating the limits of survivability? And when you place the limitations of human physiology within the context of the environment that they're exposed to, what we find is actually we're overestimating the limits of human survivability. So in hot, humid conditions, we think that the limit for human survivability is a six-hour exposure to a wet bulb temperature of around about 33 to 33.5 degrees Celsius, so not too far away from the current limit that is being used. But what we find when we get a hotter, drier conditions is that the limitation to the ability to keep cool is no longer the humidity in the environment, it's the ability to produce the sweat in the first place. And therefore, the limits for human survivability due to heat stress if we're exposed for a six-hour period are under much lower humidity conditions when that air temperature is much higher. So in this particular case, like I said, the limitation to thermoregulation is the ability to produce sweat in the first place, not the ability of that sweat to evaporate due to the humidity in the environment. And then when we start now integrating certain limitations to the ability to sweat, so you and I and anybody else who's just young, healthy, and fit, we still have a finite ability to produce sweat. What we know from physiological studies is that as we progressively age, particularly over the age of 65, and especially over the age of 75, the ability to sweat goes down quite dramatically because there are age-related decrements in the ability to sweat. So what we find is that this upper limit for human survivability, a threshold, if you will, is cooler and drier aging as well. So this is a really important consideration if we're thinking about the capacity for us to survive extreme heat across the human lifespan, not just the young, healthy people uh, who have unlimited abilities to
1: keep from, um, Yes, as we learn, the heat limit is quite different for different ages. In a few minutes, we will hear about dangers for pregnant women and babies from your colleague, Professor Adrian Gordon, and Australian Dr. James Smallcombe will talk about children during heat extremes. Let's you and I go to those most endangered of all senior citizens Do we know what percent of heat deaths are people over the age of 65?
2: Well, the epidemiological literature is very clear, is that we know that the risk of somebody either being hospitalized or dying during a heat wave is much more pronounced in people who are older. So people over the age of 65, certainly the risk is elevated substantially, and then that is even more pronounced over the age of 75. But one thing that's also important to keep in mind is that it's not just aging alone so it's the combination of this physiological vulnerability with the levels of exposure that people are experiencing and what we know is that people who are, who are however older age they also have comorbidities such as heart disease or kidney disease for example that places them at greater risk physiologically but if they also live in low resource settings where they don't have access do mechanical cooling like air conditioning that can't escape the heat, maybe have limited um, mobility because um, and that results in, uh, in a reduced ability to engage in heat avoidance behavior, that really places people at the highest risk. So we shouldn't just be thinking about it along the lines of physiological vulnerability. We need to think about the behavioral adaptive capacity. And when you have those physiological vulnerabilities coinciding with low behavioral adaptive capacity, it's the type of settings that people are finding themselves in and the type of resources that they have available to them to engage in cooling behavior. That's where it's the perfect storm of vulnerability.
1: At last official count, Australia has over a quarter of a million homeless people, and it's probably more in reality. They may not find shelter during the heat wave. Are the homeless a special category of social risk?
2: Absolutely. So, um, again, this speaks to that behavioral adaptive capacity. So um, people experiencing homelessness find it difficult to find shelter from um, extreme heat during heat waves. And actually, so um, a member of the Heat Health Research Incubator here at the University of Sydney, Dr. Tim English, is working with St. Vincent's Hospital and the city of Sydney here in New South Wales to develop uh, mobile cooling hubs for people experiencing homelessness to ensure that they have access to shelter, they have access to cool spaces, but also evidence-based guidance on how to remain healthy throughout these periods of extreme heat. And that's a study that is underway this summer, and it's um, a first-of-a-kind one, to the best of my knowledge.
1: Yes, that mobile cooling centre hub was just announced by the University of uh, Sydney. uh...
2: It's the University of Sydney, so um, Tim English
1: gross survey that i did a very quick look seemed to indicate to me that australia doesn't really have a full blown cooling center network ready in case the power fails is that your take
2: well i think that first of all we need to kind of think about what types of interventions actually work the best so the the evidence supporting the efficacy of cooling centers Certainly, in an Australian context, it has not been demonstrated to date. What what we find and what has been found is that people are quite reluctant to go to these school centres. Often, they do not know where they are. People would much rather stay um, either at home or, you know, access other types of uh, support rather than congregate in these cooling centres, So I, th- I think the evidence supporting the efficacy of those types of interventions is somewhat limited. And, of course, it may change depending on the type of setting that you're in. So perhaps something that works in a North American setting might not necessarily be as uh, effective in an Australian setting. I think that's um, something we need to keep in mind before we start advocating necessarily for a large-scale um, rollout of-, of cooling hubs.
1: But in 2009, the state of Victoria had a fairly large power outage. Uh, what happens when the grid goes down in Australia and, and uh, all those air conditioners don't keep working?
2: Well, it's certainly a, a something that is at the forefront of our minds, right? Because we know that the uptake of air conditioning is growing rapidly. Um, we have a frail energy infrastructure which is really stretched to its limits during periods of extreme heat where more and more people are reverting to using their air conditioning in order to remain cool. So it is a concern. So some of the work that we've, we've been doing here at the University of Sydney is really looking at what type of uh, simple strategies that people can use if they find themselves um, without electricity. So one type of strategy which is, uh, which we've been testing is looking at the efficacy of how you should best use water. Now, of course, drinking water is important for maintaining hydration, but you could also apply this water to the skin surface, and the evaporation of that water from the skin surface provides an extra cooling benefit. That's the type of strategy that um, is being advocated by public health organizations now for people who don't have access to air conditioning or don't find themselves in situations where they don't have access to electricity. Now, another thing that we also need to think about is how do we avoid these blackouts in the first place? Now, upgrading energy infrastructure is one thing, but that's a long-term solution. And it also doesn't really solve the problem of us consuming increasingly greater amounts of energy, which are predominantly generated by uh, fossil fuel power plants. So that's a bit of a maladaptive situation that we're kind of finding ourselves in. So we've been working uh, here at the University of Sydney alongside uh, some of our colleagues in the U.S trying to uh, look at this idea of a fan-first cooling strategy. And this is where people use fans first, such as ceiling fans or pedestal fans, to blow more air across the skin surface. And what we can do is that cools the body more for a given air temperature. And if you do that first, and then set your air conditioning unit to turn on this cooling at 27 degrees Celsius instead of 22 or 21 degrees Celsius. What we find is that people feel just as cool as they did At a cooler, stiller environment with the traditional air conditioning use right now, but the air conditioner turns on later in the day because it doesn't turn on until it exceeds twenty-seven degrees Celsius. Turns off earlier in the day, and we find that um, that will reduce air conditioning use by about seventy percent, seven zero percent, reduces electricity consumption by seventy percent, and places less strain on the grid. Also face people on their electricity bill as well. So we look at this as being quite a simple, scalable strategy that will hopefully be adopted at scale and really help us build resilience into the community when we're looking at coping with these extreme heat events in the future.
1: Those are very useful tips. I'll put them in my blog as well. The Australian Council of Social Services found even before the summer begins, 74% of people on income support are cutting back on cooling and heating, due to increasing energy costs, and that's the case, too, in America and in Europe. So there's definitely a socio-economic aspect about who lives and who dies during extreme heat waves.
2: Well, oh, absolutely, and I think that's something that is so important for people to keep in mind when we're having this discourse in the general public, is that often it's tempting for people to say, oh, well, you know, you just need to toughen up to cope with heat. And what, what I think often these people are, are, are missing is that actually the most vulnerable are people not like themselves. They're people who have frail health, but they also find themselves living in quite tiny circumstances. They don't have access to air conditioning. They don't necessarily have access to clean water. They may not have social cohesion. They may not be linked up with people in society. Often the most vulnerable are found dead at home, living alone on the top floor of a non-air conditioning apartment. At the end of an extreme heat event. So the impacts of these types of events fall squarely on the most vulnerable and often the people who are least responsible for contributing to climate change as well. So this is something that's really important to keep in mind. It's also important to try to consider that when we're looking at this at a global phenomenon is that if we're looking at the impacts of climate change with respect to extreme heat, particularly in lower middle income countries, predominantly Tropical environments, again, the type of circumstances that people are finding themselves in there are often not comparable to your average Canadian, for example, your average American, your average Australian. So um, having that context is vitally important when we're thinking about the larger scale impacts of climate change and on, other on, on extreme
1: heat. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. From Australia, Alex speaks with extreme heat expert Dr. Oli Jay from University of Sydney. We can't just focus on mortality. Everybody has to live, doing a job, getting groceries and all that. And about a quarter of the world population still has to work outdoors to grow crops. We recently heard from our guest Dr. Connor Dunn-Diaz about possible crop losses, meaning food shortages, when agricultural workers can't work outside What did your team find out about limits to livability, and how do you define livability?
2: Well, in this particular case, in this study that you're you're referring to, we were really trying to look at it from a more holistic perspective. So the focus in the past has simply been how hot and humid does it have to be before people cannot survive the heat exposure. So what we then kind of reflected on is that in order for a region in the future to be inhabitable, it not only has to be survivable, it also has to be livable. And so to be livable, we need to take into account that people are going to need to engage in physical activities that require higher rates of metabolic heat production. And we may need to take into account clothing. We might need to take into account being out in the sun. You know, all of these limits to date have, have assumed that people are in the shade and that they're resting at, uh, at minimal levels of activity. But in order to be livable, we need to be a, you need to be able to carry out simple daily tasks without risking excessive or heat stroke. So in this particular study, we basically start to look at okay, well, what type of levels of activity would be possible in these types of environments in the future, and is that sufficient to be to, to be livable? So not only are we looking at the limits of human survivability, we're also thinking about okay, if it's survivable, what kind of activities are you still able to do in those environments? And what you might find is that, under some circumstances, an environment might be survivable, but it's not livable because you can't really do anything in there. You've just got to stay still, be nude, lying indoors in the shade, which is you know, not, not not the most of we So we integrated that type of analysis into the paper as well.
1: Did you find other places in the world that may be even more serious for these new findings of heat toleration than in Australia? Where else is this... Hot, humid combination going to make things either unlivable or unsurvivable, even for a while.
2: I mean, what we what we found, and we didn't have an exhaustive uh, climate analysis in that particular paper. What we're actually looking to do is is we, we're we're now working on a on an analysis, a second paper that will um, contextualise these findings. But we did do a preliminary analysis that's included in that paper, and what we find is that the types of conditions where these really critical levels of temperature and humidity are experienced, often concentrated in lower- middle-income countries, so these tropical regions. Today, what we know is that the 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature threshold is in all likelihood going to be exceeded somewhat regularly if the carbon emission scenarios moving forward do not change dramatically. But they'll be predominantly focused on... Uh, areas such as the Indus River uh, region, uh, the Great China Plain, and places like that. But with this new model, what we expect is going to happen is that these critical limits of human survivability are actually going to be exceeded sooner uh, under more modest carbon emission scenarios and probably more widespread than just the limited areas that have been identified to date. But that's what this follow-up paper is going to focus on. illustrating.
1: The Australian Council of Social Services called the coming Australian months the horror summer, and the Australian Bureau of Meteorology predicts dire heat. With your expertise, Ollie Jay, when is it time to declare a climate emergency and get busy educating and preparing?
2: Well, the Australian Medical Association has already declared, has already declared climate change as a public health emergency, and I think they know that the right signal. It is an emergency, and it's very hot are already here, and so we need to do all we can to help particularly the most vulnerable in society to build resilience, to ensure that they can navigate their way through these extreme heat events safely. But it's also important for us to think about how we can build resilience among the community as a whole without contributing further to the problem down the line. And I think this is where... The preoccupation with air conditioning, for example, is a real challenge because it's often seen by many as a bit of a silver bullet whereby uh, you know, as long as everybody has access to air conditioning, everybody will be, be, be okay. Uh, but the problem is, of course, is that um, air conditioning is very carbon intensive. At the moment, in many parts of the world, most electricity is generated by fossil fuel power plants. And so what we're finding ourselves slipping into is this vicious cycle where it's hot, We turn on our air conditioners to cope. Those air conditioners are powered by fossil fuel power plants, which belch out more CO2 into the atmosphere, which then contributes to warmer years in the future, which we respond to by using more air conditioning. And so we need to find a way of breaking that maladaptive cycle so we can get to the point where we have a sustainable and healthy path moving into the future.
1: Yes. Well, what does the Heat and Health Research Incubator do And tell us about also your thermal ergonomics lab.
2: So the Heat and Health Research Institute is a research center. Uh, What we do is serve as a platform to enable people from a variety of different disciplines, both within academia and outside of academia, uh, working with the community, working with health, working with policymakers, working with industry, to develop comprehensive solutions to these very complex problems that we face in terms of the negative health effects of extreme heat on hot weather across the human lifespan. Uh, within that, we have five priority research themes. Uh, we focus on maternal and child health, physical activity, occupational and sport, uh, aging and chronic diseases. We also focus on two settings where we're developing solutions, so landscapes in the built environment and health, and also humanitarian settings. So that's how we organize all of our research activities, Nested within the Heat and Health Research Incubator, which is a sensor, is the laboratory which I direct, which is called the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory. And so uh, we have a state-of-the-art climate chamber within uh, the laboratory where we have the capacity to simulate both heat waves of the past, but heat waves of the future as well. So we we go to the weather records from, say, the heat wave from Chicago in 1995. We simulate the temperature, the combination of the temperature and humidity We then bring in human participants under safe medical supervision, of course, with a variety of different physiological profiles. So we bring in people as old as 90 years old, children as young as nine. We expose them to these extreme, simulated extreme heat conditions, and we measure the effects that these extreme heat conditions have on their physiology. So we measure how hot they get, how much work their heart has to do, how dehydrated they become. And then it gives us a, a, a means to identify systematically the efficacy of simple low-resource current strategies for reducing those markers of physiological heat strain that are ultimately responsible for making people ill when they're exposed to extreme heat. So we can test these simple strategies to identify which one is the most effective at keeping people cool, which one is the most effective at limiting the amount of work people, that people's heart has to do and uh, minimizing dehydration in some cases. So we do a variety of different studies in the, in the lab. One of the other uh, factors that we're doing now is trying to understand the limits of human survivability. So we have the capacity not only to simulate heat waves of the past, but also sim- simulate the heat waves of the future. So the way that works is that we work closely with climate scientists who have a really strong understanding of the way in which the choices that we make now can contribute to different climate pathways in the future. And so we can actually not wait until these heatwaves of the future arrive. We can predict what they're going to be with the different carbon emission scenarios that we find ourselves on now and simulate those different visions of the future with human participants and show the consequences of what those different heatwaves of the future are going to do to physiological heat strain and, and the risk that people will, will face in the future.
1: From Sydney, Australia, we've been speaking with Professor Ali Jay. He's the director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator and co-author of A New Estimation of Real Heat Risks. You can find links to the paper and more notes in my Radio Ecoshock blog at ecoshock.org. Ollie, thank you for the work you do and for speaking with us today.
2: Pleasure. Thank you
1: for having me on. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the World. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. Covering the world, this is Radio Ecoshock with Alex Smith. Extreme heat is risky for pregnant women and babies in the womb. It can be fatal or may increase chances of diseases in the child later. Adrian Gordon is a clinical professor in obstetrics with special knowledge on neonatology and heat. She leads clinical research and co-authored over 100 peer-reviewed papers. From the Faculty of Medicine and Health, University of Sydney, Adrian Gordon, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
0: Good morning, except I don't think it's morning for you.
1: You never know what time it is somewhere in the world. How serious is extreme heat and humidity for expectant mothers?
0: Okay, well, we have quite a lot of data now from different countries and different areas showing that the risks of important adverse pregnancy outcomes are increased with exposure to extreme heat, And the sort of outcomes that we are worried about are preterm birth, so going into labour before um, 37 weeks and having that baby early, which has got its own complications. It increases the chance of babies being stillborn, so dying before birth. And there is also um, a higher risk of babies being born with low birth weight. So these risks are a little bit different in, in different studies, but are around sort of 1.2 up to 1.5 times higher in population based studies that have looked at heat and pregnancy outcomes.
1: Does the heat affect the core temperature of mother and the unborn differently than people in other stages of life?
0: So that is an excellent question, and I guess the short answer is we don't have enough data yet to actually know if this is a risk that is mediated through changes in core temperature. So we have just uh, recently been funded by the Wellcome Trust to do a study trying to work out exactly that. So along with Ollie Jay and the Heat and Health Research Team at the University of Sydney, Um, We are going to run a study across uh, two different countries, India and Bangladesh, looking at individual measures of temperature and pregnancy outcomes, and then a climate chamber trial where we'll actually measure poor temperature when women are exposed to different um, humidity. So their team ran a study published in Sports Medicine a couple of years ago, a small study, but looking at exercise on a stationary bike in pregnancy with non-pregnant and control women and finds that actually core temperature did not differ in how it increased between those who were pregnant and those who were not and we need to understand whether this is one of the mechanisms that leads to these adverse outcomes because it's only if we understand the physiology a little bit better that will be able to offer interventions to support pregnant women to keep cool, and um, particularly in different parts of the world like low- and middle-income countries.
1: Well, we must know something physiologically about why pregnant women are more at risk than other groups. Well, what do we know?
0: I think what the hypothesis is is that we, your ability to cool down is compromised when you're pregnant. So we know uh, that you may heat up a little bit more when you're pregnant compared to when you're not because you have two people and the fetus generates its own temperature, about half a degree higher than the mother's core temperature. We also know that normally you cool down by um, sweating and that you actually have a reduced kind of surface area so that to body mass and that means that your ability to cool down by sweating might be compromised in pregnancy. However, the body is very clever, so actually pregnancy already does some physiological changes to compromise for the fact that you might be less able to cool. And so some of the more detailed nuances about what happens really have been hypothesized and not studied in humans. So we have a lot of data, for example, from cattle, So we know that for cows, there is a risk of extra heat. There's a risk to heat waves. This can result in the same sort of adverse pregnancy outcomes. We understand a little bit more about the physiology there than we do for pregnant women. And that's partly because pregnant women are often excluded from studies because they are, you know, thought to be a vulnerable population. So we do know that your ability to cool down and how you deal with heat is compromised in pregnancy, but that actually there are some physical compromises that are made, and um, for example, increased blood volume and fluid volume that actually try and sort of mitigate some of those changes. And what we really need to understand is what happens so that we can actually work out
1: interventions. Adrian, you also specialize in stillbirths. In fact, you are the chief investigator for the Stillbirth Center of Research Excellence, How big is the problem of stillbirths globally, and does extreme heat increase that risk?
0: So around the world globally, there are about 2 million stillbirths every year. So that's death of a baby before birth, and when we look across the world, the numbers are calculated from 28 weeks of pregnancy and beyond, because that's where the data is collected and stronger. So actually... Now, this is really a sort of an underestimate because in many high-income settings, we would count these deaths from about 20 or 22 weeks of pregnancy. So, if at least 2 million stillbirths globally every year, that equates to one baby dying before birth every 16 seconds on a global scale. The risk of heat and stillbirth is thought to be about 1.1 to 1.2, so 10 to 20% higher in areas where people are exposed to extreme heat. Now, that 10 to 20% sounds quite small, but obviously, if you apply it to those numbers on a global scale, in a world that's heating up, um, those things are actually going to affect many more people than um, anticipated.
1: What do we know about how rising heat levels and heat waves can affect later childhood health and maybe even lifetime health outcomes?
0: Look, that's a really good question, I guess. We know that there are other areas in pregnancy that appear to be affected by extreme heat, like uh, diabetes and preeclampsia, and both of those things have long-term impacts on the child. and As does, obviously... Um, preterm birth, or being born of low birth weight. So if there is an effect on an unborn baby from a complication to the mother, those complications can have lifelong effects in terms of cardiac health, uh, tragic metabolic health, potentially later life risk of diabetes or obesity for the child. So those, are, those conditions, those non-communicable disease conditions, are all well increasing globally, and much of that has been thought to do with rises in uh, in obesity globally. But uh, many of those conditions are also associated with heat exposure, so they may they may sort of have an additive effect on lifelong health. We know that, for example, for uh, children, so uh, infants, toddlers, also less able to cool themselves down and may not have the kind of normal voluntary urges that we would have as adults to you know drink more water or access uh, somewhere colder so certainly in extreme heat younger children are, are more at risk of heat stress and that of course is important at that life stage
1: Part of your work reminds me of a talk I had with Dr. Francisca Pereira of Columbia. Their team strapped backpacks on women in Harlem, New York, to measure air pollution coming into their lungs during pregnancy, yes. And they found actual changes to DNA, I think, uh, in the womb due to smog. So moving to Australia and Canada and around the world, now we have heavy wildfire smoke as well. Have you or others studied the effects of wildfire smoke on babies in the womb and, and pregnant women?
0: So I haven't done that work myself, but there's uh, quite a lot of work looking at outdoor and indoor air pollution, adverse pregnancy outcomes, for for example, stillbirth. And there are, are trials in other countries looking at cleaner cook stoves and stillbirth reduction, and actually a team that have run uh, a study called the Polyborton Trial are actually engaged in our Wellcome Trust um, project. So that's Camille Rains-Garino here at the University of Sydney with the ICDDRB in Bangladesh. They ran a large trial looking at reducing household air pollution. So that's certainly one area that we know is important. And there's also been population-based studies, I think, in the US, Canada and Australia, Looking at bushfire or wildfire smoke and adverse pregnancy outcomes. There is a risk there. Clearly with higher temperatures, the risk of those bush or wildfires will also increase. So in our planned cohort study, we will also be measuring air pollution as well as ambient temperature, as well as individual measures of, of temperature exposure.
1: So during hot, humid weather, what are the danger signs to watch for in pregnant women? So if
0: people are feeling hot, feeling faint, um, that's uh, a perception that they would have, and they should try and seek shade, drink more water, try and be somewhere where there is wind. So we should in general be trying to be somewhere where we're sort of I guess cooling the air less but moving moving the air more helps a lot. So simple solutions in low-income settings like a cool rolled-up towel um, in front of a fan on the back of the neck would cool people down. We know that if heart rate goes up, that can be a sign that the body is not dealing with higher temperatures. But obviously not everyone is walking around checking their heart rate so, from a perception point of view, if people are feeling faint or feeling too hot or feeling dizzy or nauseous, then that might be a sign of, of heat stress and um, they should try and make sure that they are well hydrated and, and can seek somewhere cool if possible. Obviously, in many parts of the world, you know, we have really very effective ways to keep the air cool, as in uh, air conditioning, but for many women, particularly in low- and middle-income settings. You know, they might be out working in the field, carrying water, doing really marked physical exertion right up until when they have the baby. It's obviously much harder in that setting to try and keep cool, but, yeah, hydration, light clothing, less uh, exertion if possible, and somewhere where the air is moving is important for, it, for anybody, but particularly for pregnant women.
1: What do you want governments in developed countries to do to lead the way to help protect the next generation during these climate extremes?
0: Yeah, well, I think investment into maternal, newborn and child health is very important. As I mentioned earlier, pregnant women are often excluded from these kind of overarching policy areas, from clinical trials that are thought to potentially be risky. And I think unless we actually can have policy that globally applies to pregnant women as well as other adults, we will not be able to protect this population. So I, I guess it would be a call to ensure that pregnant women are included in policy, that interventions are targeted and tested for pregnant women so that we know they're effective, and that they're really thought about in terms of workplace and country strategies in terms of protection, because I think this is uh, not a problem that is going away, and it's a population where we, we really need to think about uh, protection and prevention and coping strategies.
1: From the University of Sydney, Australia, we've been speaking with Professor and Medical Doctor Adrian Gordon. You can find links to the news and science we talked about in my weekly show blog published Wednesdays at ecoshock.org. Adrian, thank you for helping us with these important matters. No problem. Pleasure to talk. We just have time for a sample from the Climate Gen podcast with UK filmmaker Nick Breeze. Nick interviews leading scientists for his members and then posts them on YouTube. Find out more at www.gen.cc. In this
3: Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Jack O'Connor at the UN University's Institute for Environment and Human Security. Jack is the author of the Interconnected Disaster Risks report that is looking at tipping points impacting human security and the Earth system. The report is available for download via the notes as well as a link to the main website with detailed insights into a number of risk tipping points. Jack, it's good to meet you. Thank you very much for taking the time today. With regard to this new report on risk tipping points, can you start by specifically defining what we mean by risk tipping points?
4: Well with risk tipping points what we mean is um, these are points um, in systems that we use every day, so human systems, Our systems we rely on for food, water, but also things um, in the environment. The first key thing is that these risk tipping points can apply across many different systems. And what we see in these systems that we use is that their um, risk in these systems is increasing towards a point where the systems will no longer be able to function in, in the way that we rely on them to. And after their function changes drastically, now new risks can
3: emerge. And that's what we really try to focus on. Can you use one of the risk tipping points that you use? The groundwater was an example. Can you talk us through how a, the groundwater risk tipping point can extend beyond its sort of regional setting and become more widespread?
4: Absolutely. So yeah, the groundwater tipping point example, if we're talking about interconnectivity, there's a few different ways that we approach it. One is that we look into a tipping point to dig back into what we call root causes. And these root causes usually manifest in our um, behaviors and our values as people. And then stemming from that, we design systems in certain ways, often with certain weaknesses and vulnerabilities that contribute. If we think about the groundwater issue, which is that we're bringing up water from underground to irrigate our crops, this has worked well for a while and helped us to cope, especially in arid areas to irrigate during droughts, for example, but now we're reaching this point where they're starting to run dry. And some of the underlying drivers and causes for this things like risk intensifying land use. So despite the fact that we can see the problem coming, we're still um, pushing the accelerator to extract uh, further and, and get what we can now rather than make a more sustainable system. And this kind of behavior also underlies um, other tipping points um, in our report. For example, there's one on accelerating extinctions. There are a few uh, underlying drivers, many of which are well known, but underlying these drivers, we also see um, a desire to uh, extract resources as much as we can without little future planning and without considering the impact of our actions. So these Underlying root causes can interconnect cases. But also when we talk about tipping points, once tipping points pass these critical thresholds, now they can increase risk in other uh, types of systems. So for groundwater, groundwater is an interesting case because it's something we don't see. It's underground. People don't think about it much, but science tells us that underground in these, we call them aquifers, these freshwater reservoirs, there are actually rich, um, diverse ecosystems also. And so once these things are getting drained, uh, we are also unaware of the impact that it's going to have on these underwater ecosystems, but it can likely uh, lead to less biodiversity, which cascades into further extinctions.
3: And in the report or sort of with the report, you do highlight some of the groundwater issues in India. And I've interviewed hydrologists in Italy who are saying that there's a huge, um, sort of deficit. If you look at the groundwater, like a bank account, do you think that as we move forward, that we're, we're accelerating the risk for things like agriculture? Is that another way that these systemic sort of interconnections can filter back out and, and reach people who may think they're immune from these. We try to focus on groundwater for
4: food and irrigation. Yes, as you say, we, we do look at India, Italy. I, I think that another one of the ways that the risk increases is that we rely on groundwater to shield us in times of drought, for example. But when we run out of groundwater, we see that people are now trying to shift back to um, a rain-fed um, agriculture. And this is a problem considering the changing climate. Rain, rainfall is no longer uh, as reliable as it used to be. So we're sort of jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire now. Um, and when we need to come and rely on weather patterns to, to save us, it's just a riskier way to do things. If we see groundwater, if we see ecosystems and we see um, some of the other systems in the report as our safety net, as our tools to cope with risk. And as we pass these tipping points, we're sort of cutting
3: these these cords and the net is getting weaker. So to stick with the groundwater, we're talking about agriculture, which food systems, and if a large one of these fails, you were saying it's not just the local economy, but it's also that community needs to get food from somewhere else, and that puts pressure on other supplies, and these are the ripple effects that we're talking about, aren't we? There's less food to go around globally. These cause shocks to the system.
4: Yes, I, absolutely. I, I think that we're starting to, and I say we, you know, people around the world are starting to understand this more and more. I think the war in in Ukraine, for example, people started to understand that we rely on food that is not grown where we are. And that means that something that happens on the other side of the world is a massive problem for us. And while today we might not be directly involved, we don't know about tomorrow. And so we need to we need to really reduce risk yeah. um, in these kind of systems. I mean, we saw for groundwater. Um, this is not a theoretical point. Um, wells have run dry um, already in many places like Saudi Arabia. And once they lose this ability, now they're buying up. Um, agricultural land overseas and actually buying up agricultural land in places that are um, getting more stressed like the American Midwest. So the people there are running out of water not just due to their own um, food and economic needs but also from other places.
3: Another item which I thought was really interesting was uninsurable future. And obviously, uh, I mean, this can only be relevant in parts of the world that are that are insurable, which is which is generally places like Europe, I suppose, and wealthier parts of the world like the US, Europe, etc. Can you talk a little bit about how this impacts us?
4: Mm. To start off with, yes, on the surface, it does have to do mainly with the people that can afford insurance. There is a big push um, to try and protect as many people around the world as possible with insurance, and it is still challenging to achieve this in, for example, the global south. And this will become more challenging as we go along. This issue of people no longer being able to access insurance uh, because the damage is being inflicted by um, different hazards and the risk rising due to climate change, it, now people are losing what they had um, already. But this problem does then, once this point is passed and an area becomes uninsurable, there are cascading impacts that affect everybody. So for example, not just homes, but also businesses, if they're unable to get insurance now, um, it's hard for them to buy or access properties. And they may start to move away from a certain area. And so for the people that don't have the resources to move, you sort of have these areas of high risk with people trapped there without coverage. This also affects government that now has to step in and support more, which draws resources away from other um, services. So even though on the surface, uninsurability protects the wealthier people, in the end, it will affect everybody.
3: And we already see insurance companies pulling out of places like California. And I think AXA have warned that there are thresholds to what they see as insurable. I think as temperatures go up, they just have, that's an uninsurable world, et cetera. This has a huge, you mentioned the cascade potential. But this really for for countries where people who consider themselves probably quite well off or secure could suddenly see themselves flip into a different status. Do you think that this could be quite a serious impact as we go forward now? I mean, in terms of how we perceive life in the wealthier parts of the world?
4: I think so. There's an argument to be made that if you have insurance, you may... encounter what we call moral hazards so you, you you're insured and you feel like you can be risky because you have a safety net um where what we're trying to do is get people collectively to to step back from taking risky choices and the people that are waking up suddenly in california and different places in the states to find that they're not covered anymore it comes as a big shock and now they realize, uh, I think, more the risk that they're in. So I think the idea is that insurance is one part of the toolbox that can help us to manage risk. But we need to wake up to the fact that even if we have insurance, the risk is still rising and not just for insured, but everybody. And that's what needs to be taken care of. Rather than thinking, okay, I have insurance, I'm good, and then wait till the day it
3: rescinds. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're suddenly in a very risky situation. And do you think there's a connection here to loss and damage is basically results of impacts of climate change? And this is in the context of climate vulnerable nations who are generally global south and much poorer. But if you, if you suddenly find yourself uninsurable, then you are, it, it, you know, your, your whole life has changed. And we, it helps us think through some of the real impacts of what we're facing now, is that it's not just those people over there. It's, it's something we've got to consider on a much broader scale. And maybe helping those people over there will help us understand these these issues much more widely.
4: 100 uh, percent. I would, I would uh, support um, what you just said there, Nick, um, I think that in order to reduce risk for ourselves, it's it's important to reduce risk for all. Um insurers actually did, the risk has raised so much. This problem of insurability is uninsurability has been coming for a while. And one of the steps they took a few decades ago was to get insurance for insurance companies. So when it's getting too expensive, now you get this thing called reinsurance. And reinsurance covers a much wider area, and that's how they're able to absorb these big costs. But it also means that um, a disaster that happens far away, um, if it's covered by the same reinsurer as you, can raise your premiums, even if nothing has has happened in your um, locality. For this reason, and there are various others, I think this idea of collectively reducing risk having it matter to you what happens to someone somewhere else helps to reduce your risk for sure.
3: Yeah, and it just comes back to all of these tipping points. Is that there, it's an interconnected system. Just very quickly, I, there's one called space debris, and I didn't really <laughs> know what that meant. Can you just give a, a very quick overview of what the space debris is in terms of a uh, tipping point risk?
4: Absolutely, the the, uh, the space debris case. It sits, it seems to sit a little bit outside of the others because uh, nobody thinks about space too much. Um, but the the risk there heading towards a tipping point has to do with the fact that we're launching and launching um, satellites. And, and from now in, into the near future, we're looking at escalating that quite drastically. But we haven't yet well regulated, especially the low Earth orbit, which is uh, where a lot of our satellites um, end up. We don't have good plans to to bring down these satellites. And There have been a few uh, collisions and explosions in the past also that means that um, the orbit is filling up with um, debris or or space junk. Meanwhile, we're sending up more and more satellites and um, there is uh, theorized to be a, a density where it gets so crowded that if there is a collision, the debris from that will then start a chain reaction um, that hits another hits another hits another until um, the satellite infrastructure is basically um, no longer able to be used by us and uh, we wow. use these yeah we use these uh, satellites uh, among other things to monitor weather patterns and anticipate and give early warning for uh, disasters so once we lose those those eyes in the sky our risk of in many all Systems goes up, um, so we wanted to illustrate that and uh, press for the need to transform how we think about uh, using our
3: space around the planet. How much resource is being put into studying this at the moment, or even coming up with a strategy for tackling it? I think there
4: there there are uh, there there is a lot of resource and um, strategy. For example, people are looking into. Um, ways to remove junk from orbit um, it takes a lot of resource obviously to do that in our report we look especially into solutions and and what are we doing what can we do and we classify them into solutions that will delay us getting to the tipping point and transform in a way where we can avoid it and a lot of the solutions that we see not just in space but in a lot of um, the tipping points is that We found good technological ways to delay getting there, like uh, uh, maneuvering satellites around to dodge uh, junk. But in order to really address it and avoid the tipping point, the challenge is space. Uh, Like a lot of what we call the global commons, where it's not owned by anyone in particular, there are political reasons security reasons why there's a lot of distrust um, between countries and and what we need is to find a way to overcome these for a a unified um, solution among countries to regulate and make decisions on
3: being more sustainable. This really brings us towards the part of the report that is a framework for confronting these challenges. Can you talk a little bit about the framework? I mean, the three words that stick out are avoid, adapt, delay. How do you encapsulate all this?
4: The framework deals with two binary things. So there's yeah there's a there's avoid adapt and there's delay and transform. Um, the avoid and adapt re- relates to the fact that um, as much as we want to do what we can to avoid tipping points, some of these are uh, may or are uh, unavoidable. So for example, we look at mountain glaciers. Some of these We are going to lose. It seems difficult to avoid that happening. So when we think about solutions, yes, we want to avoid, but it could also be time to start learning how to adapt. And then the delay and transform, as I say, the the delay of things that we do, we're doing to try to give us more time. And before before things fail. So in terms of glaciers, um, there are a lot of interesting solutions like laying blankets on the glaciers to try and get them to melt slower and, and this kind of thing, which which helps. But in the end, the people that depend on these glaciers for their water and that water is going to disappear in some cases. Need to start transforming the way that they use water, start transforming the way that, that they value water in order to make sure that when the tipping point comes and the water slows down to disappear, that they're ready and they don't face the worst impacts. And it's not just for, for, for the mountain communities, but this kind of idea about changing how we value water and other things applies to, to all of us. It's difficult to change your value when you don't see the immediate impact. So if you turn your tap on and the water comes out, and if we can start to shift how we see things to being precious, to not being throwaway, away, to not being endless, we'll reduce our risk in a lot of these tipping points.
1: That was a sample of Nick Breeze speaking with Dr. Jack O'Connor at the UN's University Institute for Environment and Human Security. Jack is the author of the Interconnected Disaster Risk Report on Tipping Points, Human Security, and the Earth's System. My thanks to Nick Breeze for sharing his work. You can find more of his great interviews at www.gen.cc. That's gen I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world.